Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we've been making comments for 5 years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan, well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next 6 months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com/join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Commons is supported by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take just 30 minutes. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca/commons, enter promo code commons when you subscribe. Last episode, we looked at a major police investigation that went horribly wrong and spoke with a former cop in charge of it. That case became known as Canada's largest killing spree. And as that story gained international attention, it felt like some of Canada was starting to wake up. Since then, we've had a series of reports and inquiries across this country about police failings and missing and murdered women, but in many ways, we are still left asking the same questions. How can we trust the police? to protect all of us. Failing that, how can we hold them accountable for their actions when they do fail? So today, we're going deeper. First, we're going to listen to Michelle, a First Nations woman in Ontario who continues to be haunted by the actions of the police in investigating the death of her daughter Cheyenne in 2013. Then, we'll look at one way that the Ontario provincial government is responding to bad policing and accountability. Accountability groups that have power to investigate cases and charge police officers. We'll speak with someone who can take us inside one of these groups. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. This episode of Commons is brought to you by HelloFresh. The meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates delicious new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take 30 minutes from everyone to novices to seasoned home cooks like me, short on time. So, Hadia, does that make me the novice they're talking about in this script? <laughs> yes. Oh, great. <laughs> 
I found it super easy. Everything was pre-measured in, you know, adorable little bags. I didn't have to chop anything. And this is the season nobody has time to cook. You're drunkenly stumbling from one Christmas party to the next and you come home hungry. I think this is a perfect solution. Yeah. I mean, I've just learned I just don't like cooking during the week. I get home. It's been a long day. And the last thing I want to do is spend hours making a meal. The good thing here is they source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity needed, so there's no food waste. It's all dropped off at your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash commons. Enter promo code commons when you subscribe. Takeout. Takeout bad. Takeout bad. HelloFresh good. (laughs) So, Hadia, you spoke to Michelle Atkinson. What did you talk to her about? Uh, Well, the first thing I did was ask her what her daughter was like. I wanted to get a sense of who her daughter was. So let's take a listen. My name is Michelle Atkinson. I'm calling from um, Shigwanda First Nation, Manitoulin Island. My daughter was someone that was very lively. She had like a funny, crazy sense of humor. When she was a little girl, she was like, she was so chubby. <laughs> she danced jingle dress. She danced traditional. Um, she loved her powwows. She was just somebody that you can just gravitate to. Michelle's daughter was Cheyenne Fox. She died in April 2013 at just 20 years old. Michelle informed me that Cheyenne was being trafficked into sex work in Toronto the year that she died. And on the night that she died... Her body was found at the bottom of a high-rise condo building in Toronto. And the only witness? A client that was with her at the time. The police found her body at around 11 o'clock that night. And before 8 a.m. the next day, which is just nine hours later, they had ruled it a suicide. Case closed. And so how were you informed that she had passed away? The next morning, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning, I heard that loud knock. And when I answered the door, there was an OPP officer standing at my door. And he told me that um, he had some bad news for me. I didn't want to believe it. Yeah, no no parent would want to believe it. Oh, that morning there, I asked the OPP officer, I, I asked him, I said, I asked him for um, the information where Cheyenne was found, the division. And he gave me the number. I had spoken to a police officer. And then uh, I asked him, I said, I'm the mother of Cheyenne. And I just wanted to make sure that it was her. And he said, well, her IDs were on her. And then I asked him, I said, what happened? And then he says to me, did you know that she was a prostitute? She was on drugs, and she jumped. I said, how come you're saying this? I said, I'm her mother. And then he goes, it is what it is. I had to hang up. I was in disbelief how he was. (laughs) How he was so dismissive. Yes. It was bad enough that I had lost my daughter. But the interaction with the police was even worse. Wow. Yeah, this is unbelievable. 
And this was four years ago. And the pain of that moment still has the power to take her breath away. I ended up uh, doing a complaint against this constable. One of my OPP friends, she helped me put in a complaint. And then I was talking to a detective. And he had promised me that he would give the guy that was last seen with Cheyenne a polygraph. And he had promised me that if they had found anything on her, like during the toxicology, that they would open up her case. And they didn't do that. Did they explain why they didn't do that or they just... No, they haven't called me back. Right. And is that the final interaction you had with the police? Pretty much. They haven't called me back or anything like that. So we found out that that polygraph never happened. Cheyenne's parents, Michelle and John, were told when the police closed the case that the client who was last known to be with Cheyenne, the only witness, the only person present, uh, they seemed too traumatized to take a lie detector test. So they just didn't administer it. Okay, wait. So the last known person with Cheyenne the night she died was too traumatized to take a lie detector test and just walked. Yeah. Like, I'm not a cop, and to me that seems like a pretty obvious thing you would want to do is administer that to the person who's saying they didn't push her. And and for the so-called and supposed investigation to happen between the hours of 11 p.m. and 8 in the morning is uh, is ludicrous. I just can't imagine, or, or here's a question I guess I'm left with because I, I shouldn't make the presumption, but, uh, you know, you really have your full squad working the midnight shift solving murders, uh, solving, uh, solving deaths, and being able to make conclusive rulings on those uh, through the middle of the night? I don't know. So here are some other things that you need to know to really understand the gravity of what's happened here. Earlier that evening, Cheyenne was allegedly sexually assaulted by a Toronto taxi cab driver, which led her to jump from the taxi on Highway 410. Two witnesses called 911 saying they'd seen her jump out of the cab and that they were worried for her safety. And then a few hours later, Cheyenne was at an apartment, allegedly with a customer. Someone else called 911, reporting a fight between Cheyenne and the male customer. Another source says that neighbors also called 911 to report a woman briefly dangling from a balcony, but we weren't able to verify this. Less than an hour later, there was another 911 call, this time a final 911 call. It was the customer who called the police to say that Cheyenne had jumped over his balcony. Toronto police responded only to the final call and found her body that night. There was three calls. There was three calls. The first one when she uh, jumped out of the cab on the highway. The second one was when she was in that condo and if anything if a police hears a distress call they're supposed to go into the condo and see if that person their well-being is okay and then the third call was when they found her on the earth it's unimaginable for any parent to think about their child passing away before them 
But what kind of a toll has this taken on your life and your family's life? Uh, it's taken a lot on me because where I am, I have nobody. But, you know, like, I have her son. And that's what keeps me going. She's buried here where I am. There was a point in time in my life, actually this year, where I, I just couldn't handle it. And I, and I almost did myself in. Because the support wasn't there. And I deal with her death every day. Because I got no closure. And I know she was murdered. I know in my heart. They closed her case right away as a suicide. But uh, that was changed through the coroner after a while. After her dad fought. But now it's ruled as undetermined. And so what was it about the coroner that got them to change that status? Because John fought about it. Her dad thought. What does undetermined mean? Have they explained what that means to you? No, but it's not a suicide. Okay, I think we need to stop here for a second, D. Do you know what undetermined means? Um, so I didn't at the time. I looked into it um, after the interview. So undetermined is what you would use for cases where it's not clear what happened. Either there's a lack of information in that you only have partial remains, so you can't tell what has happened to the person, or where the information you have gives you a couple of competing or conflicting um, options. So in this case, Cheyenne's death was really either a suicide or a homicide. But it seems from what we know of this case that Michelle is right. There isn't enough evidence to rule this conclusively as a suicide. First of all, I would change the way the police uh, handle cases, you know, like really look into the family. I think elders should be more involved. They threw away my daughter's case just like that. And because like, she was trafficked, they didn't care. Do you think it's possible for the police to police themselves? Or do we need other people to hold them accountable? I don't know what other fucking organization that would <laughs> police them. <laughs> it's the, come on now. It's the world's biggest gang. I think, you know, this is something that, at least in indigenous communities, that I've heard time and time again, where people feel that the safer bet when you need to call the police is to not call the police because people would much rather deal with issues in communities internally rather than call what Michelle calls these gangs to come in and deal with them on their own. I want people to know that Cheyenne was, she was a strong Anishinaabekwe and that her Indian name was Kandakwe and that, you know, she loved her son so much and she was ready to come home as for the police you don't know the impact that you've had on me by not doing anything or not looking into her death but I forgive them because if I didn't that would 
not help me in my healing. I blame them, but I'm trying not to. I can imagine that's incredibly difficult. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know this is not easy to talk about, but your courage is incredible. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for letting me share this because, you know what, it needs to be told. Something that, that really struck me here is how you closed the interview, Hadia, with Michelle talking about forgiveness. I'll be honest, I was brought to tears when I, when I heard her say that because to be able to f- forgive, and she's clear, she still blames them for a botched investigation, but in an effort to move on with her life, she needs to forgive in her own words. And I think that is, that is incredible. After hearing this story, you know, I wanted to know what this family could do to get some sort of explanation or accountability for how this was handled. How do you make sure it doesn't happen again? That is a great question, Hidea. And after the break, we are going to break down the three oversight groups in Ontario, the SIU, the Ontario Civilian Police Commission, and the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. We take you inside of these three oversight bodies with the former director of the SIU, Ian Scott. This episode of Commons is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices ridiculously easy. It is so straightforward to use, you'll save hours every week and you'll have more time to let your creativity flourish and your business run. You can send branded invoices in under 30 seconds, enable online payments in just two clicks. I've been using FreshBooks for years and I can attest that their customer service is top notch and that this has saved my business. There's a new projects feature where you can invite employees or contractors to collaborate on the files and updates on invoices and FreshBooks is designed especially for people who don't like dealing with numbers like me. It's helped me at tax time and it's a huge, huge time saver. Right now, FreshBooks is offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial to Commons listeners. To claim it, go to freshbooks.com commons, enter commons in the how did you hear about us section. There are three government-related accountability groups in Ontario, and that's where our focus is today. The SIU is probably the most well-known out of the three groups. The SIU was the first one of its kind in Canada, and other provinces have taken its lead and adopted similar groups. But we continue to hear stories of police violence and police neglect. 
So we had to dig into this. What are the limitations with accountability strategies that already exist? What do their processes even look like? Ian Scott, thank you very much for joining us here on Canada Land Commons. Let's start right at the beginning. Who is the SIU and uh, what specifically is the goal of the SIU? Okay, well, the SIU stands, of course, for Special Investigations Unit, and it really came out of a series of shootings of young black men in the greater Toronto area and a need for government response. And the SIU was an attempt to set up an independent agency that was separate and apart from the police investigating the police. I mean, before 1990, the way these... um, these investigations took place was they just simply got another police service to come in and investigate a police service. So, for example, if it was a shooting in Toronto, they'd bring in the OPP or Peel. It was always either a retired judge or crown prosecutors who were civilians. They were not police officers. And, in fact, it's written into the legislation, you cannot be the director of the SIU if you've been a police officer in your past. The job of the director was to review the investigations and decide whether there's reasonable grounds to lay criminal charges. When I was there, the charge rate would have been about 5% of those charges a year. And, you know, people have criticisms about all that. They have criticisms about virtually every step of the SIU. But in terms of Canada, it was, and, and well, it remains, the grandfather and the granddaddy of all independent units doing investigations into death and serious injury matters across the country. Because we're using percentages, people know that 100% is, you know, the <laughs> as high as you can go. Right. And when we're talking about 5% relative to our to a science test grade, <laughs> 5% is pretty bad. Right. But in terms of laying charges on police officers wrongdoing, you talked about the SIU in Ontario being the gold standard or the granddaddy of of this type of department. Can you talk about that percentage and just put that into perspective for us? I mean, some would say those numbers are very low. And, you know, the policing community would say, well, it's probably too high. And some would say, well, look, you know, um, if you really knew what you were doing, uh, you'd you'd have a better conviction rate than the prosecutors who did SIU cases had. But the reality is, is that there can be a big gap between reasonable and probable grounds and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And things change between the time a charge is laid and the time it gets to court. You know, witnesses can change their, their perspectives on things. You know, I mean, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult question to say, is it doing the job as well as it can? The, I guess the question the public has to ask themselves is, if you didn't have an SIU, would you have inf- effective investigations in, in these matters? And would you ever have criminal charges laid? The results of the charges are also very interesting just generally in recollection, how many of the officers involved in cases that you review actually face actual repercussions of the charge? I mean, there, there, are, there are all kinds of logistical problems with this because, you know, laying a charge one day, it could take years before there's a conviction. I mean, take the Sammy Yatim case. I laid that charge in July of 2013, and the appeal's not over yet. I mean, he was convicted in January of 2016, so even there, there's a significant gap. And there's still an appeal going on. And who's to say what's going to happen at the appeal? If the appeal is allowed, it could go back to another trial. These things are litigated very, very heavily. I mean, the police have a bank of very good defense lawyers they rely upon. 
You know, juries have difficulty with charges against police officers. They will give them a much larger reasonable doubt, in my view, than they would the average citizen. So they're tough cases to prosecute. Let's, let's take a shooting case, for example. If it's outside of a police context, you know, the general view would be that if you shoot somebody, you're probably going to be found guilty. I mean, there are defenses. There's self-defense and defense of others, for example. Yeah. But you get into the yeah. policing situation, and it could be viewed as part of the job. I'm wondering if you could take us inside the process. How difficult is it to get police forces to cooperate with you, and, and what are the limitations between those, those relationships? Well, this whole issue in Ontario is governed by an act called the Police Services Act. So the, here, here's a theory. Here's, here's how it's supposed to work. Say you have a, a shooting case. Obviously, if someone's being taken from a scene in, a, in an ambulance, whether they're alive or dead at that point, the SIU mandate should kick in. So the SIU should be, should be notified immediately. The scene should be cordoned off, uh, you know, like you see in all the kind of TV shows with the yellow tape and what have you. And there are investigators who are on standby 24-7. There's two categories of officers. There's what's called the subject officer, and he's the one who is responsible for the, for the injury or death. So in other words, the shooter, they're called a subject officer. They do not voluntarily have to give an interview, and they do not voluntarily have to give their notes over. All other officers are called witness officers, and they, by the statute, have a duty to cooperate. They have to turn over their notes. They have to submit to an interview. The police service also has a duty to provide any other information that the SIU wants. And this could be things like, um, you know, phone calls into 911, policies and procedures of the police service. There's a lot of fighting going on for the first nine or ten years with the SIU. But the policing agencies, you know, perhaps begrudgingly in certain circumstances, have now got a protocol and they kind of get along. There's been a kind of working relationship so that the SIU gets all of this information. It's, it's not perfect, but it's not bad. Other agencies are also oversee the police uh, service. And what are the difference uh, specifically in each of the groups? You really have to think of the SIU as having a, a narrow criminal mandate dealing with serious injury, death, and allegations of sexual assault where criminal charges can be laid. So that's like one oversight agency. The other big one is what's called the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. They deal with non-criminal public complaints. Right. So what can happen when police officers are involved in misconduct issues which do not add up to criminal matters? We have to view that as more sort of employer-employee relations. These will go to discipline hearings where the worst thing that could happen to a police officer is they get fired. You know, if you have a, a negative encounter with a police officer, you think they're rude, uh, you know, it, there could be a span of things, you think there's a bad investigation, you can make a complaint to the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. But what they do is this. They get about 3,000 complaints a year from all of the police agencies in Ontario, which would be about 53 of them, they first of all look at the complaints. The vast, vast majority end up being sent back to the police agency for them to do the investigation. So they're not doing independent investigations. They, they have a small number of investigators for a certain number of difficult and complex cases. But if I had to estimate, I would say about 90% of the complaints are sent back 
but it's led to another report by an Ontario Court of Appeal judge named Michael Tullock in April of this year, which has led to new legislation being tendered in the Ontario legislature, which would change that system considerably. Especially due to the National Inquiry, you know, we know of cases where it seems like victims of violence have fallen through the cracks. Are you familiar with the case of Cheyenne Fox? Is this coming out of the missing uh, women? Yeah, it's one of the names. And why I bring up the name uh, Cheyenne Fox is it seems like her case and, and her family's concerns have fallen through the cracks where the system just can't support their complaint. So in 2013, police ruled Cheyenne Fox's death uh, a suicide. But the family strongly believes it could have been a murder that police just neglected to investigate. And she was being trafficked into sex work in Toronto and was actually last seen with a client. And there were three separate calls to 911 made by three different witnesses at three different points throughout the night. And they all were reporting that she was in danger. You know, the family, of course, is is upset that the police didn't look into the case at the time or, or really since. And this seems to be a case of police negligence, which doesn't fall under the SIU because there's no link to, to violence. But police negligence is also a major part of police accountability and, and building trust with communities. So, right. so I'm wondering where police negligence and just bad policing and bad police practice falls under any of these accountability bodies and, and what communities can do to expect more. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. I mean, the the family members can complain to the what's called right now the office of the independent police review director. They can they could look into the nature of the investigation and whether there were problems with the investigation. And there could be individual officers who could be charged with say negligence under the Police Services Act if they didn't do what would be expected of the of the reasonable protocol of a, an investigator in these those circumstances. In this province, in Ontario, it's, it's almost impossible for family members, say in a, in a case where someone has deceased, to effectively sue the police for negligent investigation. Ironically, if you are a suspect and you end up being, for want of a better expression, falsely charged as a result of a negligent uh, investigation, you can bring a civil lawsuit but not uh, families of, um, of the deceased uh, in the Cheyenne Fox situation. So, you know, they've lost a major tool of accountability. The, the, the other one I can think of, the coroner has the power to hold an inquest. And an issue that can arise at the inquest is the thoroughness of the investigation. Yeah, I mean, I know the family is suing the Toronto Police uh, Department. And I, I, it does get complicated for citizens to know what options are, are out there. I do want to get to Justice Tullock's uh, report. What did you think about the, some of the specific recommendations from the April 2017 report? He's made recommendations, which uh, at least right now have been largely adopted by the draft legislation. The government has you know, indicated they want this passed before the elections held in June. The biggest, most radical change is taking the entire public complaint system away from the police. So here's what we have right now. You make a complaint to the OIPRD, very likely it's going to get sent back to the police service where the officer you make the complaint about works. It's going to be investigated by somebody who works in that same police service. 
And if there is an internal charge laid, like a um, police disciplinary charge, it's going to be heard by a hearing officer that's employed by that police service and prosecuted by a police officer who either works for the service or a lawyer who's hired by that police service. So, you know, where's the independence? Where's the transparency? Justice Tulloch has, has addressed this head on by saying, we're going to get rid of the Office of the Independent Police Review Director as it stands right now and have a something to the effect of a police complaints agency. They will do the investigations. So the investigations will be outside of the police agency. And then if they're of the view that this matter should go to a hearing, what they're going to do is change this Ontario Civilian Police Commission, like give it a new name. I think it's, it's going to be something like Police Tribunal Unit or something like that. They're going to hear all of the hearings. So in other words, what they, what, what they will do if all of this is implemented is they will take a system which right now, which is basically completely tied up in the hands of the police, and haul it outside of the policing community so that public complaints will truly be independent and publicly dealt with. And that, to me, is radical. It largely has not happened before, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And, you know, for the government to commit itself to this means they've got to put some money on the table. How do you think the police would react if Ontario actually acted on these recommendations? We know um, how the Police Association of Ontario feels about it. They, they don't like it. I would like to think that they will buy in for a couple of reasons. One is they have a better understanding of the need to have public confidence in policing. And if these recommendations are implemented, this will increase public confidence in policing. The second is this. All the uh, policing agencies in the province are going to be alleviated from having to do these investigations. I mean, it's going to be a money saver. Yeah, it's fair to say that many of these police oversight mechanisms in the province of Ontario and in other jurisdictions as well have emerged, you know, largely as a result of advocacy from racialized communities and, you know, often following perceived or, or actual abuses of police power. Do they feel the pressure from communities? Are these oversight bodies really representing the communities um, they're supposed to? I agree with you completely that not only the development, but the beginnings of virtually all of the SIU-type bodies throughout Canada have been the product of crisis. The crisis being the shooting death of a, of a, of a community member uh, in that province and public outcry to that death. These bring up a lot of, you know, regrettably dark themes in our society, which are very difficult to address. The problem is, is that the criminal justice system and the SIU and all these similar agencies have a, have a narrow mandate. Its mandate is not to run a, a royal inquiry into the death. There are other agencies that, that can look at that. The, the mandate is not even to look at systemic issues. So, I mean, I, mean, I think one of the big, big problems is that people look at, to, at agencies like the SIU to solve social issues that are really outside of its ability to do so. And therefore, they, are, they experience frustration by that process. And I, 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 I can appreciate that. I understand that. I mean, if I had a family yeah. member that was shot by the police, I'd be, I'd be very upset and I would be looking for forms of redress. Let's try, let's try to zoom out just a little bit. Are we looking for solutions in the right places? Is policing itself flawed in terms of the way it connects itself to community? Or is it that 
we, as we're led to believe in most media nowadays, that we're living in much more violent times. There are more guns on the streets, etc. And therefore, policing is harder. Look at the stats. Criminal charges have been on decline for a long time in Canada. I think, regrettably, we've been sucked into the American orbit on the war on drugs, which has, to some degree, mounted the polarity between um, the police and certain communities. Maybe there'll be more resolution of that, you know, in another year's time when marijuana becomes legal. That in itself is going to lead to a, a decrease in what the police should be involved with in terms of what now is illegal activity. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think a important part of the conversation is what is salvageable and what is necessary to move forward. Do you see a lot that is salvageable from the way we are policing in communities today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, you know, I don't get a lot of Christmas cards from the uh, policing community, but... Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> well, no, the fact that I've uh, prosecuted police, been the head of the dire director of the SIU and run a law school course on uh, police accountability, we don't have this sort of breakdown that we see in some of the American cities of, of basically an occupying army of the police, but it's a fragile relationship. It's one, one we have to keep working on. And I think there are some answers. In fact, there's some aspects of the Tulloch report that address that issue in the sense of get the police out of some of the, these peripheral things they do and have them concentrate on their core responsibilities. And in, in the process of enforcing the law, being able to deal with people in circumstances where, where they'll be well-trained to de-escalate as opposed to escalate. If we could restructure the way the police works in communities, and you could change one thing, what, what might that be? In, in, in the best world, we wouldn't have situations where there was the non-consensual use of force by agents of the state, which is what the police can do, and you and I can't do. But that's, that's I have to admit, naive, and is not going to happen in a post-industrial, complicated society like ours. So I would like to see the recommendations from the Tulloch Report in spirit and in word implemented into law. Ian Scott, thank you so much for, for being with us here on Canada Land Commons. Thank you very much. So, Hadia, I came out of talking with Ian, uh, I, like I learned some things, but I still have questions. You know, there's still much conversation left to be had here. The SIU, in all of its successes, which Ian have, has talked about here, and it being a model of police accountability uh, in some regards, the criticisms are still there, that they are not being transparent enough with the public, withholding records, not collecting the proper data so that we don't know what their findings are. We don't know whether to believe police are targeting marginalized and racialized communities because that data is not available. Many communities have said they do feel like they're being targeted, but because the SIU doesn't make that information available, we can't really tell. It becomes hearsay and it's easy to foo-foo to and, and, and shove it under the rug. Definitely. I mean... The executive summary of Justice Tulloch's report has 110 recommendations. Um, almost half the report targets the SIU. I think when people look over it, they will see just how clear Tulloch is. And there's a reason why Ian Scott said adopt the whole report would be his sort of solution on how to fix policing in our communities. And I think that even with that said, 
Hadia, just recently in the news, we heard about the case of Deborah Christian, who died in police custody in London, Ontario. And the SIU investigated the case. Uh, the SIU charged two police officers involved. The police officers were charged with criminal negligence, causing death. And just a few weeks ago, the Crown dropped charges against one of the two officers. It seems like two steps forward, one step back. The SIU doesn't hold all the chips, right? So they're step one of the process. You know, they have to be involved to charge officers. But then once it goes forward, we also have to make sure that that process is sound. The Crown has control as to whether or not they're going to proceed with the charges once the police lay them. And it'd be interesting to to fold into these recommendations, you know, how the Crown can provide uh, more information. I'm sure this family is very, very curious as to why the Crown has made this decision. And without any information from the Crown, they're still left with those kinds of questions. Right. Yeah. And it's always the family members at the end of the day that have to raise their voices the loudest in order to get attention. And and by the way, something I didn't do during the interview was give full props to Black Lives Matter. This is an example of Black Lives Matter in Toronto that raised their voices surrounding the case of Andrew Loku. I think that without them raising their voices, I don't know if there would be action, right? Yeah. It's one thing to say that these oversight bodies are there to do this type of work, but it's a whole other thing to understand that generally the way to kickstart this work is to be loud. Do you have more questions than the answers at this point? What are your, where are your thoughts? Where are you at with this? I mean, I'm a black woman. I practice what I will say to the police if they stop me. I have a script. Yeah. I run over various scenarios. Do I take out my phone? Do I do Facebook Live? Like, how do I keep myself alive? How do I keep myself protected? I am someone who has a law degree and who knows my rights and who knows what the police can and cannot do. And I'm still afraid. So I can't even imagine what people who don't have those things feel with respect to the police. Yeah. Every black child gets a lecture from their parents about uh, what to do. Like yeah. part of the reason I didn't even want to live in the States, I did not want to raise a black son in America. I was afraid to raise a black son in America. Wow. I'm afraid to raise a black son here. And I need a policing system that makes me not afraid. I think where we are left at the end of this mini series on police accountability, I guess all there is to say is to take good care of each other out there and to be safe. That's our comments episode for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McMahon. We would love to hear your feedback about this episode. And if you have feedback for us, or you just want to rant about politics, record a voice memo and feel free to send it to our producer, Abby, at canadalandshow.com. This episode was most excellently produced by our new producer, Abby Madan. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, find us online. And if you like what we do, please support us.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. 